That might have been what went out. Oh. Isn't that weird? Yes. Hey, we're happy to see you, Miss Martha. We were talking about you earlier. <laughs> you weren't here. You don't get to know. <laughs> Just kidding. We, I was talking about a possible vacation trip and that if, if I did go that you would be able to handle that for me <laughs> and she would because <laughs> she's well yeah she's good I'm going to start my timer okay we've got an hour and a half to get through all that we need to do now I've already kind of laid out the plan for you this week what we're going to try to do is go back to first to chapter 10 then we'll do 11 and 12 we're going to do some um, outlining what I call it's going to be your titles because that was part of your homework at the end. She actually had you go into 12 and do an observation worksheet. And she said, now title that chapter, right? So what we want to do as a group, I think, is go through and just get our titles of each chapter and our paragraph titles. And what's going to happen for us in that is it's going to super simplify all the complexities that are within each chapter. These chapters are loaded. Chapter 10 already, as we saw, that one was really loaded with a lot of extra things that had nothing to do with the prophetic utterance, but had to do with the, the spiritual warfare that was going on in the heavenlies, right? And we had this man in linen. We had no clue, you know, who is this guy? And we had to kind of banter that around a bit and work that through that. And at the end of it, um, my personal uh belief is that it's the man in linen is Jesus. And um, if you don't agree with that, that's okay. He's still a heavenly being and, the, and everything that he says are, is still legitimately exactly what he says. He's still a messenger from God. He was sent by God to Daniel in response to Daniel's prayers. And he gave him something that was called truth, right? It's a truth that I'm giving to you. Okay. So Let's go back first and just do a real quick context setting for the book of Daniel, because I do think that by context setting this again, as we get toward the end here and as we go into chapter 11, it's going to be really beneficial to you to be able to see exactly what it is that was the intent of chapter 11. After all, it's quite detailed and quite complex. And what is its purpose within the writing? And why would God give so much detail? What would be his reason for doing that? Particularly on just one particular uh, kingdom. Why this one and why so much information? When about others, I mean, if you stop and think about it, when, when he introduces Alexander the Great to us, it's like two sentences and he moves on. And you're going, whoa, do you know how big Alexander the Great was in history? And yet we get this much, and yet we get all these other details that follow it. And that, th there should be a question in your mind as an inductive student. Your questions then should be, okay, why does he spend so little on this, but so much on this? You know, there has to be a reason. It's just like the man in linen. Why is it when Michael is introduced and Gabriel is introduced, you get this much information. But when the man in linen is introduced, it's like all this, right? Plus, if you go back, to other uh, chapters, like all the way to eight, and then you move forward to the others, to 12, you see that man in linen brought up over and over and over, and then your list even gets bigger. And so why do we get so much detail and information on him, but so little on the others? There's got to be a reason, and that should be triggering in your thinking some objective observation about, well, there has to be something special, or there has to be something more important right, about this particular person or 
uh, in this case, sometimes kingdoms, that is relevant to the author's purpose for writing. So now let's go back and do that purpose for writing thing, okay? Okay, our author is who? Our human author is Daniel, right? Under inspiration of God, obviously, right? Um, let's talk about the historical setting of Daniel and the opening of this book. What was going on at the opening of this? What's, historically, what was going on for Israel? Yeah, they had, okay, so historicals, it was captivity uh, by Babylon. All right, so that's the first one. There had been three sieges, by the way, that we looked at way back at the way beginning of all this in chapter, in part one of Daniel. Um, and so for those of you who missed out on one, I don't, I think pretty much all of you were here, but if you did miss out on part one of Daniel, you need to understand that there were three sieges and, and all that was entailed in that God gave. I mean, this is historical backdrop to Daniel now going into this captivity and what it is that he's enduring in and how significant it is, how profound it is. And who is Daniel? Who are his people? And why would they go into this captivity? Right. Uh, another significant point has been what, what else is going on concerning Israel and its relationship to God? At, historically, the setting of it. Yeah, there had been a huge disobedience. And in the doing of that, what happened to their temple? The temple was destroyed. So let's put that down as a point. Okay. Temple is destroyed. And... When God sent them into this captivity, how long were they to be there? Because in chapter 9, we read that Daniel had been reading in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, no, how long? 70 years. There was going to be 70 years, 70 years um, in Babylon was decreed by God, right? So they had the 70 years were going to be decreed. They were in this captivity in Babylon. There were three sieges to get them there. Their temple had been destroyed and earlier with, our, well, actually, in the, I think it happens more in the middle of Ezekiel, but it's during those three sieges. Ezekiel is the one who writes the, the information that we learn about how God leaves his temple, right? His spirit leaves the temple, and then the temple is given over to the enemy. Okay, what is our literary style of this book? History. History. There you go. It's a duo. It's history and prophecy. Now explain why it's important for us to know that when we're going to work in any book. Why is it important to know what your literary style is? Okay. Context and interpretation. Primarily interpretation right why what is it what does she mean by that how does knowing its history help me when i am viewing the things that i'm reading in the book of daniel good both are great timeline that you can verify it in other words it's it's actual events that you should be able to go back and look at because now it's in ancient history for us we can go back and look at things and how do you interpret a historical book truthful it's truth it's factual it's literal generally right 
Now the quirkiness of Daniel comes in that it's also a prophetic book. So along with the historical record, there's prophecy. Now, how do you take, prophecy is given to us in what manner? What, what is it that is given to Daniel and to um, Nebuchadnezzar in this book? Dreams. Visions and dreams, right? And appearances of supernatural things come in these visions and dreams. So when you're looking at visions and dreams and, and there are things given to him, like give, give me an example of one of the visions. The ram and the goat. Okay, a ram and a goat. Now, how do I literally interpret that in a book of history and prophecy? Right. Interpretation, if you keep reading, generally is given to you within the text. But when you're looking at a ram and a goat, what is it, how do you handle a ram and a boat, goat picture in your mind? How do you hand, handle that to, for interpretation? Yeah, okay, there you go. Yeah. I mean, you can't, it's not literal. Obviously, it's not a real ram and a real goat, right? And in my drawings, they're purple and blue. So <laughs> we know that those are not really literal. So if it's not literally handled for the prophecy part, it, it's imagery, right? But it's put within the setting of a historical record, right? So what you can come to say then is, okay, the imagery will result in a historical factual interpretation, correct? So that's your goal is to say, okay, he's giving us historical facts, but he's doing it through imagery. And so we have to filter out the imagery and figure out what it means. Fortunately, most of the time, God gives us the interpretation right there in the text. Like in chapter eight, if you go on to verse 21, it says, and the ram is this and the goat is this. And so he tells you who they actually represent, right? very helpful but it takes it takes paying close attention as an inductive student you have to write all these things down if you tried to remember all the things that we have done by drawing pictures and by making lists and by doing timelines can you imagine you would still be confused about everything you you get through to the end of daniel and go well i'm not sure i i mean you would get the gist of god being sovereign for sure and you would understand that god is all knowing for sure um, and that Daniel was faithful and a man of prayer, you'd get those things, but you would not understand the historical timeline at all if you did not do the things that we are doing. So when you, uh, when you are an inductive student, your goal is to say, okay, the first thing I need to know is what kind of literary work am I, am I in so that I will handle it according to that kind of literary form. If you know it's imagery, then you know it's not literal in the picture. But there is a literal interpretation that is going to be historical. We are in a book of history. And as a matter of fact, when the statements are made by Daniel, one of the key repeated phrases that we're seeing over and over in Daniel is, Daniel, this is about who? What, is these, what are these visions about? Your people when? And primarily when? In the latter days or at the end of the time of the end or at the appointed time of the end. Now, so once you have determined your literary style, then you know what it is that you should be doing and it's going to help you stay on track. Uh, the worst thing you can do, I think, is to go into a book like, like poetry, for instance, or like, the, like Psalms or Proverbs. Proverbs that says, uh, train up a child in a way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, if you take that and interpret that as literal and say, oh, factual, my child, if I train them up, correctly they are going to be they're going to come back and they are going to 
go to heaven, right? They're going to get saved. That's kind of how you would interpret that. But when it's prob when it's a poetry, what is it? How should it be handled? What is poetry a literal interpretation always? No. What is the point to poetry? It's to convey a message of truth. It's a general truth. And sometimes it actually is a factual truth because sometimes the poet, the, the Psalms and the Proverbs have things that are, do have a literal point, but you have to go to the next point. And what he's, what he's really saying in the book of Proverbs is the general rule of thumb is if you will do your part, then the odds are they will come around. It doesn't always work out though. That's not a promise. It's not a promise. And that's going to give your heart comfort because when you have a wayward child, I have one that's still not in faith and he's 40 years old. And so does this mean I didn't do my job? Did I fail in training my child up in the way it should go? Do you see where you can go wrong with if you don't get your literal, uh, your, the, the literary style, if you don't mark it out in your mind so that when you're reading it and interpreting it correctly, then you can end up either becoming angry or disillusioned or even give up and just walk away from it. It's very important that you understand your literary style. So don't ever forget that as a student, okay? Um, now let's look at our book keywords in the book of Daniel on the whole so that we can see what do keywords do for us? What do they tell us? Major themes or major subjects, right? And the ones that are repeated the most, what does that tell you? They're the most important points to the book on the whole, right? So what is the major things that are talked about in the book of, of Daniel? Kings and kingdoms. Visions or dreams. Same, basically same thing. Understanding. Interpretation, okay. Wisdom and knowledge and understanding. How, how big are those? They, I mean, I think they are big as far as coming to the understanding part, but are they the emphasis of the teaching in the book of Daniel? How about we nuance it a little bit? Who, who are the major uh, people in the book of Daniel? Israel, the Jews, right? There you go. That's what I was looking for. God most high. Now, concerning God most high, what have been the major characteristics about God most high that have come to the forefront? Now, we can name all the things we know about God, but let's not do that. Let's name the two major things that the book of Daniel covers concerning God most high. Right. He's sovereign because he's able to raise up and put down kings and kingdoms and all knowing he's the omniscient God that he knows the end from the beginning. He, uh, he reveals these, this understanding that you were speaking about the wisdom and the understanding, um, uh, Rebecca, that you were speaking of that's within the context of who God most high was because he's the one, as a matter of fact, if you want to speak about wisdom and understanding, where do those things come from? Only from God. 
And we've gotten into this week's homework, again, that subject, but it's this time the subject isn't wisdom and understanding. The subject matter that gets brought up for us in 10, 11, and 12 is the word truth, right? Same emphasis, though, same kind of subject matter. It leans us into the same direction of uh, kind of the same basket, basically, right? It puts us all in the same little basket of understanding and wisdom and insight and so forth. But in this case, now it's going to be truth. And truth is that wisdom. And the truth comes from God. Okay, so God most high and concerning him is two things. He is um, all-knowing and he's sovereign. Okay. All right. Well, I think, is there any others besides those that you can think of that you think are absolutely important? Okay, so the Jews and Israel, I'm going to add Israel. Along with that, the Jews, they almost can be put in one word like, like we did, but let's put that in there. Okay, so then what do you think is our major theme for the book on the whole? If you were going to title the book of Daniel, and you didn't want to call it Daniel, what would you title the book of Daniel? Most High God Revealed and Raised. There you go. Oh, I love that. Most High God. reveals you must have read my notes a few times <laughs> okay i really like that one most high god reveals and reigns now where did she get that from what what key verse would she have re, uh, gotten this particular statement out of there you go you guys are catching on now too 21 and 22 is that right or is it 20 and 21 22 okay Okay, 21, 22. Okay, good. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to men of understanding and knowledge to men of understanding. Um, it is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells in him. Wow, that verse, I think, nails this whole book. And it covers pretty much every subject that we put up here doesn't it? So it's really, a, I think it's a really good one. Now, there are some really excellent ones also in the uh, chapter four, where it speaks about uh, God most high as well. But this one kind of covers the two, the dual uh, character of God in his all-knowingness and his sovereignty. And so that's kind of the one I ended up landing on in the end. Okay, now, with this context reviewed now, we're ready to, to dive into 10, 11, and 12. Um, just briefly, though, let's talk about what we have learned about God's sovereignty on the whole in the book of Daniel, just for fun. Tell me what you think God is sovereign over, according to the things that you've observed in Daniel. Kings and kingdom. Obviously, he is the one who raises them up and puts them down. And so when you saw um, last week when we looked at chapter 10, where on the one, one hand, he, he's for Persia and he's fighting for them. Or, and then the next time you see him, he's fighting against them. And so you can see there in the spiritual realm, there's this, this warfare that's taking place. That, who is it that's the sovereign over it? God most high, right? So God most high is the one who's in charge of that. So sovereignty over kings and kingdoms. What else is he sovereign over? 
all kinds of affairs of mankind, not just the rulings of kings and kingdoms, but the individual life. Because for instance, in the life of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what have we seen him taking care of? What's he sovereign, been sovereign over concerning them? Say it again. Yeah, life and death. At the end, as a matter of fact, um, Belshazzar was a great example of his life was weighed in the balance and found wanting. And that very night, his life was required of him. Okay, so God is, the, is sovereign over life and death. The spiritual realm. He rules in the heavens. I love that where it talks about in the heavens and on the earth, and he's the ruler of it all. This may be implied, but time. Oh, that's good. Oh, it is the appointed time, and things don't happen to tell. So that tells you that God has a plan and he's sovereign over it. He has a plan for the ages. He has an unfolding time schedule for it. And things don't happen until he says, okay, like Greece coming, right? Greece won't come until God allows it. We know how long was it from the third year of the reign of, of is it, was it Darius? Was that the person? Okay. So the, the third year of the reign of Darius, where we see him withstanding the kings of Persia, how long is it until Greece comes? And it says very soon. 200 years amazing so yes he's he's sovereign over time and the and the execution of his timely plan okay what about protection think about what happened to Shadrach Meshach Abednego or Daniel in the lion's den so God can any man take your life your life that God is not allowing it can your spouse or your child or your neighbor or your friend or your friend's husband, can any of them die outside of God's precise timing for them individually? No. It's really interesting because here's God in the book of Daniel. He is sovereign over timing of things, when things will happen. He's sovereign over their life, even their health, right? He's sovereign over what they know and don't know. He gives knowledge to certain people. He withholds it from others. God is the one who's sovereign over all these things. And yet he also has got this big picture going. But yet individually, he was walking with the three men in the fire. And he sent his angel to Daniel in the lion's den. So you see God from two perspectives. He's, he is this very big God that, that holds the whole universe together by the power of his word and it sits in the palm of his hand, and yet you, your personal life, also is in the palm of his hand. Isn't that amazing? Okay, great. Okay. Yeah. Very good. That's a really good one, I think, especially for us as humans, because we tend to be rather competitive. Um, and uh, jealousy can't set in. You think about what Daniel went through. These men who were jealous of Daniel is why they set him up to go into the lion's den to begin with, right? Um, humans are that way too, on, the, on the whole. We still are that way. We tend to be jealous of one another and of some people having more than other people. And that's why what we see politically going on right now, this, this, uh, how, this, um, they're setting us up to hate one another and to be in rivalry against one another rather than appreciating one another's 
things that we bring to the table, whatever that is, right? Um, so God is sovereign over the big. He's, over, he's sovereign over the little. He, he is sovereign to say who, who attains to wealth and prosperity and who lives meagerly. And yet he uses each of them in the place that they are. Isn't that an amazing thought? So it does not matter where you are in time and history. God has placed you there. Acts um, 27 says that, right? That he determines the exact time and place in history that you would be born, that you might seek him and find him, although he's not far from any one of us. He's there for everyone. But he has chosen this exact time in history for you to be here, right here in this room, <laughs> or in, on, the, on the screen there, because he desires that you seek for him and find him. This is sovereignty. This is a God who's over the big and the little. And I'm so glad I'm one of his littles, right? Okay, now let's talk about a segment division in this book. And I didn't write that up here. Let's put that up here. Segment division. We do have a segment division in this book that's pretty obvious. What do you see in chapters one through six? Who is it primarily covering? Or what is the subject matter in a literary form? Mostly it's the history, right? Yeah, history and kings, right? about those kings and then starting in seven through 12 then it it shifts to a pri priority of what prophecy now there are a variety of other ways uh i also saw in one through six there's like a second person account of events it's more like about nebuchadnezzar and belshazzar i mean you're kind of hearing through the voices of of the varieties of people but then when you get into the end 7 to 12 it's all daniel and it's first person pronouns i i i i right i daniel okay so that's another way you can look at that a segment division okay now let's talk about breaking down our titles and chapters let's start with daniel 10 um when you because we've just done this, this should be really fresh on your mind. Daniel 10, what was the primary message in that particular chapter? What was the main event? Because remember, anytime you look at a history, you're looking for people, places, or events, right? We know the people is Daniel. Vision of a man in there you go. Vision of a man in linen. Okay. Um, this is Daniel's vision. Vision of a man in linen. Okay, so that's a really good title. As you look at that, then what did you see in those first four verses that help you to understand what you need to know about that vision of the man in linen? What is presented there to us? Okay. I love that. He does give us a historical context for it um and that's true and it should have been marked for sure geographical places should be marked time references should be marked but when you look at one through four what are you what are you learning about this vision about a man in linen something that i that tells you what the the vision is, is. what is the most key it is. What is your key repeated word in chapter, uh, those first four verses? K. 
It's the message. It's a message. And how is the message quantified? What is it? How is it described? What kind of a message? Truth. There you go. It's a message of truth. So he's had a vision. That's our title. And about this message, it's a message of truth. Now, you, I, I'm telling you, it really was tough for me because I wanted to kind of break down verse one, which is the introductory statement, right? It's kind of the overview statement. We talked about that last week. And then go from three through four and look at Daniel's response, basically, to uh, that this message, that this vision came in response to Daniel's prayers. You could do that. So you could break it down into two titles or two paragraphs there if you wanted. And I actually did do that initially, but then I decided, you know, you, what you really want are some in this flow is you want real concise points that relate to your title. And concerning the title about this is a vision of a man in linen, well, concerning that vision, what is it? It's a message of truth, okay? As a matter of fact, he is, right, the vision. And, what, and then ver, uh, verses five through 13 then is where I broke up the next part. You could have broke it five to nine and then gone 10 to 13 even or something along those lines. But what do you see in, if you look at it from five to 13? That's where you see who? The man dressed in linen. And so if you want to say is it's, he has a vision of a man in linen, what you want to know is the message or, or the vision is of a certain man. in linen, right? So that identifies what the vision is. We said he, he has a vision of a man in linen. The title almost gave that to us. So it's a little bit redundant, but I do think it's significant enough to go ahead and give a paragraph title in that manner, because what we, now, what we know by looking at the things that are told to us about this man in linen, because it's so detailed that it's, it's a it's a major point. If it were just a message that came through an angel, it would just mention the angel this much and it would have moved on to other things, right? But it, for some reason in this chapter, it's important for you to catch that he's a certain man and that that certain man is distinct from just all these other messengers that have been sent before. We, we see in those verses 5 through 13 that spiritual warfare. So if you did want to break it down further, you can add another paragraph in there, maybe starting in 10 to 13 and say that, that he was told basically of spiritual warfare. And what was that spiritual warfare about? What was the, what was the war? Yes, and what was the warfare for? Why were they warring? Okay, so it was the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms. Does that fit with our major theme of our book? See how this all fits together? How if, you're, if your target is right, if you come up with a good title or a good subject, it's going to fulfill your ultimate uh, author's purpose, which is why I did this with you this morning. You, have to, you understand that he's God most high that reveals and he reigns. He's sovereign and that he is the one who raises up kings and puts kings down. That's our major book theme. So when you get into chapter 10, you see that he has this vision of a certain man and this certain man is, has portrayed himself as being a warrior who was fighting concerning the rise and the fall of Persia and Greece at this point. Those are the two nations that were addressed. Okay, then let's go to 14 to 20. 
what is the major thrust then of that vision? What, what was the purpose of the vision? Yeah. Yes. What will happen? Uh, to Daniel's people, as just said to his people in the latter days. Okay, so now we know concerning this vision, it's a message of truth. It's about a certain, it, the vision himself was the man in linen, which I think is quite unique because all these other visions have been animations of things like a statue or, or a ram and a goat. Right, weird animals, beasts that come up out of the ocean, right? And now we have a certain man and he's really declared it. Oh boy, we didn't do it. But I'm telling you, if you want to be really, really blessed, go back and do word studies on every one of the, of the qualifiers of how he's described in that verse five and six. And just look up all those words and look at what the emphasis is on as, as a man in linen, his, his glory, his power, his, um, his, um, what is the right word? His holiness, even. Those things are all defined within the definitions of all those words. And what you come to see is how unique he really is and, and how the emphasis is placed upon who he is in those qualifiers. Okay. And then you get to the end. Now, I did skip the part uh, again on the spiritual warfare because that spiritual warfare, it's, it's like sandwiched between the beginning and the ending there. He, he starts in like 10 to 13, he's talking about the spiritual warfare, but then you jump down to, um, into 21 and he says that, and he was told that no one stands with the man in linen except for Michael, your great prince. Now, how have we now come to see the, the interpretation on this? I know what it looks like on the surface, but again, here's our two pillars. Never violate your known doctrine, right? And let context rule for your interpretation. So with those two things in mind, why would he say no one stands with me? If his title is this, God Most High, if in fact that man in linen is God Most High, why is it that no one stands with him as stated? Oh, you guys are awfully quiet. Does he need help? No. Is there anyone who could stand with him, being equal to him and with the same measure of power and with the authority? And no. And so I think the statement is really more a statement of who he is. It's almost like he's saying, listen, I am God most high. No one stands with me except for Michael, your prince, who, by the way, I assigned and placed in that position to do that work. So if you keep your doctrine straight, who is Michael? He's a created being. Who created him? God did. What was his assigned position? He was placed to be the warrior over the, the sons of Israel. He was, and at the at chapter 12, we come back and we see he's going to rise up to do more spiritual warfare on your behalf, Daniel. He's telling Daniel this why. Why is he bringing up the spiritual warfare in 10? Okay. Okay. And how will that help Daniel? 
There you go. It's to encourage him and to give him comfort so that he will be confident and be brave. He literally says in there, Daniel, do not be afraid. Right. So by telling him about this, he's like, he's letting him know, listen, there is warfare going on. My warfare. I, God most high, I am warring on behalf of you and your people. My word will be accomplished. This is the word of truth. Isn't that an amazing thought? So when you look at that statement about he's told that no one will stand with him, you can interpret that if you hold to your your, uh, doctrines as an understanding that he is simply letting him know, I'm the one who's in charge of all of this. I am God most high. I am both sovereign and all knowing. And it's going to be done because he closes it with verse 21, telling him about this vision. What? Yeah, it's true. And he was told that these things are what? Inscribed where? In the writing of truth. Now, what does that mean? What is he saying there? There's a book. And and if it's written, if it's inscribed in the writing of truth, what, what would that mean to a Jew? I'm sorry. Say, I'm, I'm not hearing. It's scripture and what? Yeah, right. It's the Pentateuch. It's the, right. And how do the Jews view the writing of truth? It's it. If it's written in the inscribed in the writing of truth, that's a, it is a fact. It is going to happen. It is absolute. And, and earlier he's used the word decreed, right? Or appointed. And whenever it's decreed or appointed by God most high, and now it's inscribed. And I think it's interesting. He says, and hey, listen, Daniel, this has been inscribed in the writing of truth. What does that tell you about these events of, of humanity? Before Daniel wrote them down, what? God wrote them down. God has the plan already established even before it's given to man to write down. Isn't that an amazing thought? God most times. So for Daniel, this is a word of comfort. Daniel, you don't have to be afraid. You can know that I'm God most high. I am the one who stands watching over your people. And Michael will come to help when I leave. And I, I don't leave you unprotected. There is always, and of course, God is omnipresent. We didn't cover that one, right? But he's not trying to portray that here. He, what he's trying to show Daniel is, I am sovereign over this. And I know what's co- going to happen down the way. And I'm in control of it. And you can know that these are the things that are going to happen pertaining to your people and your city, which is what he brought up in in nine. So here he says, uh, these are, what is the vision? It's things inscribed uh, in the writing of truth. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, for you and I, I can, I could not get through every day that we've got going on right now if I did not know God has a plan, and I know what the plan is. So I, since I know the end of the story already, because He told us. He knew, he knew my personality so well. I have to know the end of the story. If I don't know what's going on at the end so that I can follow what's going on in a movie, I don't even want to watch it. 
I like to know the end from the beginning. It's one of those ones that reads the last chapter of yes. the book and then starts right. the book. I never read a book, but yes, if I read a book, listen, I definitely do the Bible, obviously. And yes, I skim through and I read captions at the beginning of paragraphs and then move on to the next one. I don't read the whole, all the details. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a reader. I don't like to read, but I like to study. <laughs> I love research. That's totally different. I'm looking and I'm making bullet points on my pages when I do it. You know, I just did a whole thing on, um, what was this group I just looked up? Cause I, somebody brought it up in one of the videos and I, I didn't know very much about them, but they're a group of people. Um, what are they, what are they called? Um, oh, I can't remember right now, and it's not important, but they're a group of people that, are, have, that pertain to the end time events and those kingdoms that are going to come against Israel at the end during those Ezekiel wars, which are also controversial as to where they go on the timeline. Do they happen before the seven years begin or do they happen toward the end? However, what we do know is it's not the Armageddon fight. It could precede the Armageddon as one of those wars that are happening during those seven years. But in any event, there's a group that come from the north of Israel and they come down. And uh, I had to do a whole bunch of research on them because I hadn't, I didn't know anything about them. I'm still trying to learn. I'm trying to get ready for Revelation because I know you're going to ask me and I'm going to say, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I've only done it five times. I need another one through. Okay. So that helps us with 10 though. If you look at now, what I want to do as far as inductive training is, is to show you how these all relate. Do you see how this paragraph title relates to answering this? It's a message of truth. The vision, it's a certain man, right? It's man Lynn, but he's a certain man. And it, and this vision is about what will happen to Daniel's people in the latter days. And this vision is the things that are inscribed in the writing of truth. So your titles, your paragraph titles address or answer what your chapter theme is. Does that make sense? Okay, let's move on to Daniel 11. You're going to be surprised to see that I only have three titles. This is going to simplify your ch chapter 11 of Daniel for you so much that you're not going to care about all those pronouns. <laughs> and oh, isn't that isn't that cool? That's all done. That's all done. All I'm worried about now is those last few verses, right? So, okay, in Daniel 11, on the whole, what was the primary message of that chapter? What did you title your chapter 11? Did you title it? Say it again. Okay, that's good. Relation. Okay, that's a polite way of saying something, though. What was their relationship? Falling and the rising. So there was wars going on between these kings, right? So there was like a wars for dominion. Did you notice that word dominion keeps coming up? It's a key repeated word in the book in chapter 11, dominion. If you didn't mark it, you might want to, because what it really shows you in 11 is how there was a, there is a tug of war. There's a power struggle that goes on in this particular kingdom and of who's going to have dominion in it. Who's going to be the big guy on the block, right? Uh, so what you see, so let's just title uh, this one. I'm going to get my red chapter title so you um we're going to put wars for dominion and then i, I actually can 
added to that, so it became a very long title. But what happens to every one of these kings? They eat, they always come to their end. Every one of that's a very good title. You read my mind. And kings who come to their end. Okay. Because you you could you could um, but when you but when you look at the when you get down to those last chapters that are not yet fulfilled it wouldn't relate to the title and so then you'd be stuck with this this extra thing that's like oh I need I need chapter 13 here <laughs> right okay or, or should have gone into or 12 it should go into 12 or something so that's why I didn't do it that way, but I understand why you would lean that way. Uh, what I remember doing years ago was I'm, I think my title had to do with wars of the, of the North and South or kings of the North and South, because that was the primary message. But the problem was, is I realized when I went through to do my titling this time, I, those last verses from 36 to 45 did not relate to the wars of the North and South. So that wasn't a good title for my overall book or chapter rather. Do you see how that mm -hmm. is a problem? Okay, so inductively, if you wanna to try to stick with the, the method of what you're doing here, you wanna to try to find a title that addresses the whole chapter, right? And then, and the good thing is now you can go in and start honing it down. So what you do know is what's going on in verses one and two, what, who are we addressing there? Well, who, yeah, what kingdom is addressed here? Who's Darius? Oh, Persia. Persia, okay. So he's talking about Darius the Mede, Medes and Persians. And he says, now I will tell you the truth. There's that word truth again, right? Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. And then what? And then a fourth. And so he, he segregates that fourth one out because what happens at the end of that fourth one? That's the last one. He does something that provokes who? Greece and then Greece comes on the scene. So what we literally see then in that in that those that verse one and two is what happens to Persia? It comes to its end, right? So there's our title, Wars for Dominion, Kings Who Come to Their End. So we see the we see the Persian Empire is addressed right there, correct? And it falls. Right? Okay, then the next segment, I, I covered 3 to 35 for the exact reason that you guys have already brought up, that all that you see going on starting in verse 3 through 35 is what kingdom? The Greek Empire. So now we've got the Greek Empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he rises up. So there's the the rising up and the putting down of kings and kingdoms that's in our major theme for the book it fits doesn't it and it also addresses what we've said here that these are wars for dominion and these this is about kings who come to their end so this one comes to its end then this one rises up within this one though there's a lot of detail that we have to cover but the good news is it's history now thank goodness for people who are actually his, history buffs that have been able to go in and look at all this. And we're going to go in and just talk about it in general. We're not going to be as uh, detailed as, as maybe some would like to be. 
but I don't think it's necessary. Did you find the commentary that she gave to you helpful? Okay, so that is new. That was not in her previous, uh, uh, yeah, because I had to go in and do all that for myself at one time, which I have one and I will share it with you if you want. I can send it by link, but mine is much shorter and mine's more precise to which people are actually being talked about where she gives you more general background. She says this was going on, that was going on. And, you know, she gives you uh, more adjectives of description on things where I just go in, this was Ptolemy the first, this was you know, Seleucid the second, this was, you know, and it just, I just named the people by name and just show you. But the what's the, what's the overall message that you come out of when you get through that and you realize this is history? Does it blow your mind that God gave this much detail to Daniel in advance? Can you imagine how Daniel was, his head had to be spinning? Because Greece wasn't even on the scene yet. He was still living in which empire? Persia. And there were yet going to be three more kings and then a fourth to come after he had written this one. And so he was clear at the beginning of the Persian empire. He wasn't at the end. Greece had not come on the scene yet. They were, uh, they were a nation that was out there, yes, but they were not a formidable nation and they weren't in world power. And they certainly were not in power over Israel, right? Who was over Israel was Persia at that time. So da Daniel is listening to God giving all these details about alliances and people coming through the, the beautiful land and all the things that they were going to be doing. And he had to be going, whoa, what is going on here? I know too much information. No kidding. No kidding. I mean, we... That's... You hit it. Rebecca, you nailed it because that is exactly the whole point to this entire message. And that was going to be my next question. What was his major emphasis in telling Daniel about all these details about the North and the South? What was going to happen to Daniel's people in the future, in the latter days? For him, the latter days were yet also those things that would happen in Greece. But there's an ultimate end time that's going to yet come too. And somehow the, this, these detailed information that he gave us in these uh, chapters three, th or verse, yeah, verses three to 35 were information that he needed Daniel to grab hold of and understand so that he would be comforted. And that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty hard for me to totally grab a hold of. But ultimately he says in verse, starting in 36, what happens? Yeah. In verse 35, he, he makes it very clear. And if you didn't, if you didn't mark it about the end time there, what does he say about the end time at the close of 35? It's still to come. So what do you now know? You're not in the end time kingdom when you're talking about Greece, right? So Greece was not the end time. He's saying the end is yet to come, right? It's still to come. Then he goes into 36 and he says, what? What's the first few words there? And then this is what's going to happen. And if you keep going down, let me get to my, um, in verse 40, he makes it even more clear. And at the end time, 
Then he starts talking about what is going to be happening at that end time. So he makes it very clear that there's a transition between verse 35 and 36 until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. So what he does is clarify to you that what you're looking at here, Daniel, what I'm showing to you about this kingdom of Greece, this is not the end time. There are going to be some really horrible things that happen. And what is one of the really horrible kings that's a lot of detail given to? Yeah, verses 21 to 35. It hones in so that in the beginning, he banters back and forth, north and south, north and south. You see this, this power play that's going on in within the Greek empire itself. What did they say about a kingdom that's divided? It will fall. <laughs> So this was a kingdom that was definitely divided because, because what happened to the first king? And who was the first king? Alexander the Great. You're right. His, there you go. So the generals came in. As a matter of fact, if you look at history, there were five to begin with, and one eventually fell off. Then it left four. And these four generals then were those four points of the wind, and they had divvied out the kingdom itself for rulership and these kingdoms. Now, why do you think these two are then honed on the north and the south? There you go. It's north and south in perspective to Israel. So stop and think about that. Now you go back to these visions. All of these visions and any kingdom that's mentioned, why are they mentioned? Yeah, that's right. Somebody asked me in my evening group about, well, what about all these other kingdoms? There was this kingdom and there was this kingdom. They're not even mentioned. Why are they not mentioned? They, don't have anything to do with Israel. they have nothing to do with Israel, God's holy people, right? That's what is this whole message. This is for Daniel and his people. And this is what God is going to do concerning Israel, the nation in the end times. And this is why when he refers to the saints, he's speaking of God's people, the saints, right? It, it becomes more clear the longer you stay in this book. In the beginning, it's a struggle, but eventually you start to go, ah, I see, I see. Because what's really cool is, what is God's ultimate goal concerning Israel? That they come into faith. When it says he's going to purge, refine, and purify, what is he saying? Yeah, there you go. He's going to purge, purge those that what? That won't, won't come into faith. They, what's going to happen to them in those end times? They're going to die, right? And those who are refined and purified, what's he going to do? Yes, that's right. Because when we get into 12, pardon they're going to be rescued. Thank you. I love that. That to me is one of the 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 next part that we get when we get into chapter 12. Okay, so let's title this 30, uh, 36 to 45. If this is the Persian Empire and this is the Greek Empire, what is this one? The end time empire. Okay. Don't you just love that outline? It doesn't that simplify chapter 11 for you right there? You go, oh, yay, Persia, Greece, and the end time. All done. Now, what's really cool is uh, when you did some of your work, did you hear Rome brought up at least at one point or another? Yeah. And what does that tell you? They're coming. 
and apparently they had a little bit of a alliance going on with Egypt at, at some point. They had become buddies with them and they came to help them. And they did help them because when the king of the north came down and was going to do all these horrible things, they got, they got support from the Romans who came in to help them. Eventually, what, what happened with Greece? It fell. And who did it fall to? Rome. Isn't that interesting? So it started out that Rome was just sort of a sidekick and a helper, but eventually they became the empire that ruled. Isn't that interesting? Okay, let's do Daniel 12 real quick because we're doing really well. And gosh, we're, we're way ahead. I'm going to be done early. Don't say that. Yeah, don't say that. Why'd you say that? I don't know. Okay, well, honestly, even if all we did was outline today, it would be sufficient. Would you feel satisfied? Yeah, I would. Because, yeah, there's all these details we can talk about, and there's a whole bunch of little points we can, we can kind of parse through to get more insight and understanding on them. And we can do that now. We're going to go to some open conversation after we finish this. But just doing your outline sets everything in a perspective where you see the flow of thought, you see it's about this vision. What you're seeing is this vision of a man in linen. It's a message of truth. It's what's going to happen to his people in the end times. It's the things that are written in the word of truth. And then he goes on. He says, now, concerning the, the Persian Empire, which, by the way, Daniel, you're in right now and you know it, right? Because you're underneath uh, Darius at this time. And he says, there's a Greek empire coming because it will soon come. He tells him that actually back in 10 where the spiritual warfare was going on. I'm going to go, but Greece is soon to come, right? And then he says, this is the end time empire. I'm going to show it to you in a glimpse. But he, what he did do is that Antiochus Epiphanes passage starting in 21 to the, to the end of 35, he goes into a lot of detail on him. Why would he do that? There was a lot of persecution against Israel specifically at that time. What else does the despicable person do? That's yeah, he's very, very much like the end time. As a matter of fact, how many of you have been listening around a little bit? And some of the pastors actually say that this despicable person is the end time king. They conflate the two. Why? Because they haven't done the timelining. And they didn't do what we've just done, outline these chapters. If you just did an outline on Daniel 11, you already know that, that he's not the end time king because the end is yet to come. It says it very clearly in verse 35. So, I mean, that just tells you that sometimes these commentaries and even pastors, well-meaning pastors who love the Lord with all their heart, but if you don't do the inductive work, that you need to do. If you don't slow down and take all these pieces and look at every piece, mark your keywords, you wouldn't notice it. But just marking the end is yet to come. You go, oh, oh, this isn't the end. Okay, so that despicable person can't be the Antichrist. He sure looks like the Antichrist. The guy we looked at back in chapter seven with Daniel's dream, right? I read last night that it said that the Antichrist or that no, absolutely. No, he doesn't. And I have an interesting list I just did when when uh, Kristen came. Yeah, I, I can't wait to go through some of the things that we look at with him, because we can really build on what we know out of Daniel 7, for instance, 
having seen what we're going to see here at the end of 36 from 36 to 45. Okay, let's go on to 12 now. One more chapter and it's a pretty short one. Um, he asks a question in here, which I think is a really good leading um, lead into kind of what the major event is. What What is the major address in chapter 12? End time yeah, end time events. And what is his specific question about the end time? When, how long until it comes, how long will it last? When will it come? When is the end? We addressed this a couple of homeworks ago. I think it might've been in six or seven, but now we're back to kind of viewing it from the perspective of doing an observation worksheet and, ho and honing in on it. He really does want to know when are these things going to be accomplished? Cause you're saying all these things are going to happen. How long is it going to take before we get to the end? And what does he tell him? A time times and a half a time. When that time times and a half a time that I have described to you finish it finishes, then it's going to be done. So he's giving him basically a criteria, some markers that he can be watching for. Not so much Daniel though, because what does he tell Daniel? Go on your go on your way. Close it up, Daniel, and tell the the time of the end because. Basically, you're not going to understand all these details, but you will go in and you will go in peace. Is that what he says? And then you will rise again at the appointed time. You will enter into rest. Yes. Okay. So Daniel wants to know about the end times when all these things are going to be completed. Right. So how are we going to title this chapter? How long, oh Lord, how long? Yeah, how long, oh Lord? How long? How long until the end? How about that? Is that working for you? Mine is much longer than that, but that, that's pretty good too. Uh, the end comes when all these events are completed was my title. That's a long one, but I kind of like this one. <laughs> How long until the end? That's sufficient. That says basically all you need it to know. Now, verses one through three cover what? What does he say is going to be going on at that time that would give Daniel comfort about the incoming, the resurrection. It's a time of, there's two points that are made. The first point is what? The word distress. It, what kind of distress is it? It's just like Rebecca said, it is beyond anything. It's beyond the Holocaust. It's beyond any of these wars that have been described. It's beyond your comprehension as to how bad it can get. And when you get into Revelation, you're going to understand why. Because Revelation, when God begins to break the seals and blow the trumpets and then pour out the bowls, this world is going to go through a time of distress such as never happened before. And it's going to be horrifying. But you know what's cool about it? What's the next thing he says? there's going to be some who will be rescued. So there's going to be, this is a time, how long until the end? Well, concerning that end time, it's a time of distress, yes, and rescue. I love that he did that because he gave you both sides of the coin. Which side do you want to be in? Do you want to be the one who goes through the distress or do you want to be the one who gets rescued, right? In four to seven, what does he what does he tell us is going to be happening during that time? They're going to all be completed when what happens? Well, he, 
there you go. He gives them the distinction of the time, times, and half a time. So he makes sure that you understand there's a qualifier that you're going to be looking for. And that is that time that's been described by Daniel as a time, times, and half a time. And, and then during that time, times, and half a time, he says, when, the, the, uh, the, when they finish shattering the power of the holy people, that's when that end is going to come. When, and who's the they? When they finish shattering. It's those, it's all those kings. Yes, it's that end time king who is the Antichrist and any of the other kings also who come against her. Those who will, it says that they will, um, once some of them go into the place in the wilderness to hide, that's talked about, then there's going to be, they're going to go after the rest of the holy people. And this is where it, it's interesting because it starts to talk about people who obey the commandments of God. They love Jesus can't remember what the other ones are. Do you remember what they are? Uh, it's in back in chapter seven. Somebody can look for that. And rebellion and disobedience. Are those the three? Because he talked about that before and I wrote that down, but I might have Yeah, it might have been, yeah. There's just a there's a point in there though where he says to Daniel in his vision about those four beasts. Um I've even forgot my train of thought now. I'm never mind. We'll go on. I'm so glad you guys understand. I'm totally losing my brain. Okay. They're, when they finish shattering the power, oh, who they were, it's the people. It's the Roman Empire and who all these are. And it talks about them pursuing the woman and following after. Basically, they're, they're going to, um, yeah, it's in Daniel uh, chapter 7, I think, where it talks about that little horn. And he says, um, yeah, verse 25. He says, and he will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in time and law, and they will be given to him for a time, times, and half a time. Previously, he had said, uh, those who hold to the testimony of Christ and, right, where was that part? Oh, maybe, maybe it was Revelation. It could be Revelation. Uh, cause we, but I do remember that was a problem for us when we were discussing the saints. Well, yeah, but these saints are those who hold to the testimony, right. Of, of Christ. And that was a problem. Now, now that you know that these are the saints, meaning the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and that God's dealing with them. Why is it that some of them are holding to the testimony of Jesus? They have become believers during that time. And now guess what they have to do? They must endure until the end. And God, for many of them, they're going to be preserved in the wilderness in this place of hiding for a time, times and a half a time. But some of them don't. Some of them don't escape. They don't obey what God has told them in Matthew 24, which we're going to get into, I think, next week. 
Yeah, don't go, don't go back, just book it. That's right, just get out of town, baby. Don't go back for your cloak and, and pray it doesn't happen in winter and that it doesn't happen if you're a nursing mom because it's gonna be really tough on you. But yeah, we did. And so what I'm saying to you is here, a time to finish shattering the power of the holy people. So it's the holy people who are gonna be shattered. How are they gonna be shattered? We just talked about refining and purifying, right? So it's going to be a time when what's going to happen to the holy people? They're going to be refined. There are going to be some that are going to be purged. Okay. Are you catch, starting to catch it? So the shattering of the holy people means destroying those who are rebellious to God and leaving and protecting and rescuing those who are going to come into faith in that at that time. That's why they're people who keep the commandments of God and are, uh, are loving the word of, uh, of Christ and are loving Jesus, basically. Okay? It's not because they're Christians, they become Christians, but it's not until the end time events begin to unfold and, and all these things happen. And many of them actually don't come into faith until the very last second. That's what else is, blows my mind. Many of them go into that wilderness hiding, yes, at least they obey God in that. But many of them, it says um, in Zechariah that at some point God is going to pour out his spirit on them and then they're going to start to weep and mourn and then they're going to realize what they have done, right? But because of their obedience, they will have the spirit poured out on them and their eyes will be opened. Isn't that amazing? What a great thing. Let's say when they, they would be those kings of that end time that come against them finish uh, shattering the power, meaning the resistance against God, power of the holy people. Okay, and then the last one is, I would, I had a tough time with my closing part, 8 to 13. Oops, I'm not in the right place anymore here. Get to 12. Um. <laughs> yeah, Daniel, don't worry about it. And what does he say that Daniel should do? Yeah. And he says, um, how blessed is he who keeps waiting, right? He says, Daniel, you just go on your way. And, and then he gives a word of encouragement to those who are going to be there, who will be there during that time, times and half a time. And he gives them a word of encouragement and says to them what? How blessed you are if you waiting. keep on waiting. Ah, oh, yeah. I know it. Isn't that annoying as all get out? I. Yes. 1,260 days. Yes. And then an extra 45 days. Yeah. We don't know what that means, do we? And as we still don't know. And as far as I know, there is no explanation given to us. However, what we do know is the shattering of the holy people takes place over the 1,260 days. After that, there are additional days in there. And we don't know what they're about. There's in, in totality, there's a total of 45 days that are we haven't even addressed them yet. We aren't talking about them yet. Maybe they'll be in our homework and we'll get a little bit more insight on them. But 
we have to wait and see. But what we do know is God is giving Daniel what's going to happen for Daniel and his people in order to bring them back, that he might rescue all Israel and that all Israel shall be saved. Romans chapter 11. I love that because there's a verse in 11, uh, Romans 11, where it's, which it talks about the grafting in right, of the, the Gentiles into the Jewish faith. And at the close of that, I think it's like around verse 29-ish or something like that. There's a statement in there. It says, and in that day, all Israel shall be saved. Why? Because the promises are irrevocable. The promises of God are irrevocable. The word of truth that's been inscribed in the writing of truth, these things will happen. I'm going to deal with, with them at the end time for 1,260 days. When that finishes, that's going to be the completion of the shattering of the power of the holy people. I almost want to rephrase it to the resistance to God of the holy people. When they stop resisting God and when they turn to him and all Israel is saved, then there's an additional 45 days that something happens. And he says, blessed are those who, who endure until that time. It's going to be so cold. I was thinking there's a lot of things in my head about what might be happening there, but he doesn't address it specifically. So I'm just going to put how blessed is he who keeps waiting. It's almost like the statement of, you know, keep your eyes looking up, right? Always be watching for Blessed is the one who waits and watches for the return of the Lord, right? And so it, it's almost as if that's really what he has said to Dan. He says, look, just keep your eyes looking up. I'm coming back at the appropriate time. It's an appointed time. And when it happens, I am going to, uh, there's going to be blessing for those who wait for me until that moment. And especially if you think of your of yourself uh, from Daniel's perspective where he's looking at his people and what they're going to have to go through and how hard it's going to be. And he's, he's telling him, Daniel, they're going to be blessed if they keep waiting for me, right? Okay, so that covers basically everything we need right there. Now we're ready to go back into chapter 11 and just look at some of the details of chapter 11, which was our primary work this week. So I honestly don't really have a lot of details to give to you on this that are that are like in a chart form or nothing that's laid out. I really kind of just want it to be an open forum for questions. Um, we definitely want to discuss that despicable person because he seems to be the one that is the parallel to the coming end time king. But I also kind of want to look at that end time king in a little bit more detail because he's the one that that um, Daniel speaks of as being that fourth beast, right? And then there's 10 horns that come out of that one also that we see in Revelation. And it speaks of the, um, the end time, that him being the little horn, as opposed to this king that we're going to be looking at in Greece. Who was he? Do you, did you figure it out? Who is the, the, the rather small horn? Did you figure that one out? Antiochus Epiphanes, right. Okay, now Kay did us, I, I think, a really good job in what they're giving to us now. She gave you all this history that you could go through and read very carefully and plug it in, depending on how much time you wanted to devote to this. She also gave you kind of a synoptic picture just of the two houses of the, uh, the Ptolemies and the Seleucid. 
and what you came to find out is what? When did these two houses reign? Under what kingdom? We were under Greece. And so these were internal wars, right? They were civil wars, basically, within their, their own kingdom. And the fact that they're called North and South is North and South in relationship to Israel. So Israel's at the heart of this. And that's how you come to really understand what's going on in that Daniel 11, North and South. Okay, tell me what your questions are at this point. Or, or what did you want to discuss further? I don't know, but I do know this. I heard a sermon this morning that said that when Alexander the Great arrived um, and defeated Persia, that the Jewish priest, the high priest, informed him, come and look at this writing of Daniel. And he showed him that he was that big horn. You know, I don't. I didn't draw a picture of the first one. Now I've only got the the one with the four horns, where it's divvied out to the four corners of the wind. But once I figured out that all of this was about this kingdom, Greece, I drew my figure from chapter eight back in on this one too, so that I would make sure I kept that parallel in my mind. I also on my sheet I used a orange marker. I don't know if you can see this on your side. And I just drew kind of a light colored line all the way through all these pages so that you could see that I was still in that kingdom until I wasn't. When I got into the darker gray area, then I was in a new kingdom, okay? But I did draw pictures of my little horn, okay? And when we get to the despicable king, I drew a picture of my my shaggy goat again. And this one, it says, and out of him comes a, a rather small horn, right? That's what it had said back in uh, chapter eight. And that's what it actually describes right here, that out of one of the, the Seleucid family members came Antiochus Epiphanes. And he, was, he, he came by intrigue and he wasn't really even a legitimate king, right? But then he came in and took it by intrigue. Okay, so that's really helpful, I think, in just how you mark your observation worksheets, draw your pictures in, do a nice line of some kind that just shows you. The other thing you could do would be one of these things. I, it's something I used to do is like, you know, where all the numbers are, one, two, three, each of these verses, and you could do this and then say Greece. That would work too, it'd be faster maybe. Um, I just wanted it to be kind of neat and easy for me to follow. What I could see, though, is everywhere I have an orange line on my numbers, I'm still in the same kingdom. Can I ask a question about marking? When you got down to 36, I kept going before I realized that it's getting to change. Um, so is your king of the south and king of the north marked the same way that you did back? Yes. Yes. Because they're still north and south of Israel. It doesn't matter who the king is or what kingdom they're out of. They're still north and south of Israel. But the king then is not necessarily one of those two anymore. Right. It's another. It's an obviously. As a matter of fact, it's one of the points that how do you know that in verse 36 it changes has to do with that very point that you just brought up. When you hit the um, when you're going through the first 35 verses there, you see the north and the south vying against one another, right? 
But when you hit 36, he says about them in starting in verse 40, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, him who? That end time king. Uh, uh, and the king of the north will storm against him. So now what do you know? He's not the king of the north, nor is he the king of the south. He's another king. That's where we like yes, like, good girl. Him who? <laughs> um, generally, what Kay tries to do is give you um, idea of paragraph changes, right? And so I don't always use her paragraph changes as she marks them, but it is helpful if you're new in this and you don't really, you know, know what you're doing. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me bring that up higher. Can you see that now? <laughs> I got to pay attention to what I'm doing. Kind of like you would have marked, say, the Antichrist king in the back there in the four beast chapter. Try to keep yourself with the king. In this say that again. Like back earlier in whatever chapter was oh. the four beasts when he talks about the end time. The end time. I, I did. I just marked him as being a part of that fourth beast. And that's another really important thing. And that is don't separate your end time king from your fourth beast because he's in the fourth kingdom. He is the fourth kingdom, which is very interesting. This is why we've all we've talked about it over and over. And we have said um, the the end time king. Are, are, do you remember the one in Daniel 9, 24 to 27? It says Messiah, the prince comes and then the prince who is to come and those that will destroy the temple. And then then this other go find that verse. That's in nine, nine, 24. Because that one makes it really clear then that that king, that end time king is out of the end. He still is a part of the Roman Empire. That's why often it's said that, the, that we're going to have revived Rome come. You know, now, we may not call it that, but in the eyes of God, it is, right? Whether we call it that or not, I, I almost think we will, but... In any event, what he does tell us, it says, uh, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, we've already done all that on our timeline before. And it says, and it, it the, the, the temple will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. We saw that in Nehemiah. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. We know that's the crucifixion and have nothing, meaning nothing as in he doesn't attain to a kingdom yet. Although in Daniel 7, it shows him coming and being handed, handed the uh, scepter of rulership for the earth, right? By, the, the, um, by God who sits on his throne. But here it says, no, he doesn't get anything here. At this time in history, he gets nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the, the city and the sanctuary. We know that was Rome, right? And that happened in 70 AD, correct? Mm -hmm. And so now what we're talking about is the prince who is to come, his people are the one that destroyed that city. So what does that mean? His people, the Roman people are his people. So he's a Roman. So there's going to be some kind of a revived Rome at some point. And that's what that is saying. And so we don't ever want to separate the end time king from the Roman Empire. We want to always make sure that's understood to be the fourth beast. Okay. Now, the, obviously, it's unique. It's different. 
It, it kept saying that over and over and it gave us a lot of detail. It's two legs and then it's got feet and the feet have 10 toes, right? Mm -hmm. And then when we get into Revelation 12 and 13, we see a dragon that has seven heads and one of, the, one of those heads has 10 horns, right? And then we talk about one that gets plucked out or three that get plucked out and the other one rises up. So you end up at the end with eight. So you start with 10 kings, you end up with eight kings. And so all these things are still yet future. And so we don't have all the details, but we do know it's the Roman Empire. It's the fourth beast, right? And when you come here to the end time king, what follows the Greek Empire? Rome. Isn't that interesting? Didn't name it, although we see that name come up when we go into the historical record of Greece that there's a Roman general that comes in and does some rescuing, right? Helps, helps the king of Egypt. Uh, fight off the king of Syria. So they're mentioned, and we know historically that Rome follows Greece and that Rome was an aggressor against Israel. We know that too. Certainly was an aggressor against the Christ himself when he came. He was, they were a major part in that work against God and God's people, right? So that's why they're on the agenda of our timeline. Otherwise, if they weren't significant, if Rome was not important, concerning Israel, they wouldn't have even been mentioned. But they are mentioned because they are part of the history plan that God has concerning uh, his people. So that's really interesting to know that. You can dismiss all the other kingdoms of the earth and say, oh yeah, they're important. Yes, they happened. But they aren't significant in the plan of God concerning Israel's and his, uh, Israel and his temple. Okay? All right. So that takes care of that question. So when you mark the end time king, then one of the things I thought was interesting, did anybody have a question about um, how he's described? When you went into detail, did you make a list on how he's described it all in that chapter 11? Are you talking about the end time? 36 to 39. No, I'm back at, I'm back at, yes, I'm at the end time king. Uh-huh. Antiochus, we're going to talk about in a minute, but I want to just talk about. Did anybody make a list on the things that you see about that end time king? I'm going to make a list for you just because for fun. And then you can go home and really refine it when you get there. We'll just start. We'll just get you started here. But there are some, is some controversy about what's meant in there. And, and they describe it in different ways. The end time king okay so we're going to make what we call a topical list okay 15 minutes not going to be a problem okay um he says about we see starting in verse 36 what do we see about this end time king yeah he will um do as he pleases but what else there you go that was i think the most important one he will exalt himself right? We could go and magnify in, in relationship to what? Uh -huh. Above every God. Okay. You can almost make that as a title to your list here because then he goes on and he says, what's he going to do concerning Yahweh? Yeah. He speaks again. There's the, uh, the, um, blasphemy that takes place we see back in chapter 7 he speaks monstrous 
things against God. That's in 36. Okay, 37. Yes, and he will prosper. Absolutely. And? Until that indignation is finished. Yes. And? There you go. No regard. For the gods of his fathers, that's in 37, okay? Yeah, no regard for the desire of women. Okay, now you're asking questions. <laughs> okay, let's finish our list and see if we can figure it out. Because there are lots of controversies on these verses and what they mean. But I think that once you make your list, it becomes obvious what they're speaking about. Okay, okay, no regard. And then what's the next thing he has no regard for? No regard for any other God. 37. For, then he gives a conclusion statement. For, what will he do? Okay, magnify himself. It'd be A B O V E above them all. He says that one twice, right? Okay, so that starts to give you a, a little hint. And what else will he do? He will honor who? That, that one is confusing to me, but we'll see. Honor a God of fortresses. Now, that's in 38. I'm not sure I can answer that question. I can already hear it. Okay, and a God. Okay, so he will, um, he, he will honor a God whom his fathers did not know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, and that's in 38. Okay, now, if you were going to do keyword search in this, tell me what is the major keyword in here? Fortresses is a big word if we're wanting to figure out who the God is. Maybe, but that our question first is about this women thing, about the desire of women. Tell me, what is our key word in, in this list? God, 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 God magnifies himself, making himself God, the God, the God. Did you notice that something that's consistent in there? Every single point that's being made in here is that he is an aggressor against worship of anything except for him. Yes. So what would that women's statement be? Would it be about homosexuality? Which is what a lot of people think it is. Oh, he has no desire for women. Does that mean he's a homosexual? No, it's a God. There's a need for women. Diana or 
Yeah. Okay. So what is the desire of women mean potentially? Right. Yes. But once you make your list and you see that everything before it and everything after it consistently is God, 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 God. So this desire of women has something to do with a God, doesn't it? It has to be a God worship of some form. Now, what it specifically means could be one of two things. It could be the desire of women. You have to say, well, what women? Well, in this case, it's really interesting. He's saying he's going to exalt himself above all gods, and in particular for the, the God of his fathers and for, what was the other one? Um, yeah, God of fortresses, right. So basically, God most high as well, correct? Mm -hmm. So another thing could be the desire of women. What would be the Jewish women's desire? Who are they looking for as a, the Messiah? Maybe the desire of women is speaking about the coming Messiah. And that, to get, right, possibly. So the women's desire is for the coming Christ, the seed right? Who it was promised. Maybe it's, maybe it's that they would have no desire. Well, the desire of women in general in the Hebrew nation would be, maybe they would be the mother of the Christ, right? I mean, it's after all, if you go back to the Adam and Eve account, when they first sinned and God promised a seed that would come to crush, right? When um, Eve gave birth to her first next child, it was a, a boy. She says, look, it's a man child. She was so excited. She thought it would be the savior, the, the seed that would crush. But what did he end up being? The first murderer. <laughs> right? So the desire of women could be the desire of that coming seed that would come through them. And so, be, and that being, that seed being a God come in flesh, that it's the savior, that it's God himself incarnate. It could be that. Or... I think you brought up the pagan gods also. Do you remember what they were doing in the temple uh, in the days of Ezekiel, just before they were exiled out and the, the Shekinah glory left? They were setting up statues of, um, it, well, there was Zeus, but it was also, um, pardon? Yes, Tammuz. That was it, Tammuz. And she was the false god, mother of heaven, queen of heaven, right? Who has this child and, and everything about her mimics, but, but pollutes what God has promised. And it's been embraced for many generations by many people, sadly. But this, this desire of women would be their god, which would have been Tammuz. And quite interestingly is that takes you all the way back to the garden of, uh, or to the, uh, Tower of Babel, right? And the first false god religion that started taking place at that time in history. And that's the root of all other world religions that are polluted, that are wrong. So it could be that too. So what I am saying to you is, I don't exactly know what the desire of women means, if it means those who desire the coming Messiah, or is it- their husbands. <laughs> yeah, right. Or, yeah, of course you do, honey. <laughs> One 
they were equal. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. God to this father, a desire of women. Okay. And then he put the comma and then says, nor will he show regard for any other God. Right. As almost as if everything he talked about before that was considered a God. God. There you go. You did great. That's a good observation. That is what I... That is where I was hoping you would all land at the end of this, is to, con to come to understand that when you make a list on this guy, the things that are going on in here, it's all about God. It's all about false worship of false gods. And, and uh, so whether you look at it from one angle or the other and exactly what it, he meant by the desire of women, I'm not certain. But apparently there's going to be something going on even at that time where there's this desire of women and he's not going to have any regard for that. Yes, it could be. You got it. But what is it going to be related to? No. God worship. The worship of some kind of God. And he is and jealous for that. Himself. There you go. He magnifies himself above them all. So whatever that statement means, it's not about homosexuality. Uh -huh. It's about a God worship system of some kind. And that he is going to magnify himself above them all. Isn't that cool? How easy was that? Uh, yes, and that one is the one I'm not positive yet on. I need to do some more research on that. But I think it has to do with power and possessions. It's like the guy who owns many palaces. You know, he's got this power. That's, again, making himself to be the god. Uh, but, but I'm not sure. I have to, y'all work on that one this week because that one I don't know. Okay, we're down, to the, we're down to the last little bit. Is there anything you want to talk about concerning your... Uh, pronouns or any of the, the people that are in here that you had concern about? I found it interesting. If you go to other commentaries, you will find these people being all kinds of stuff. I had one I found that had this person being Cleopatra and this person being Julius Caesar. And I'm like, I don't think he was on the scene quite yet. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> he wasn't a gore. Oh, wow. Yeah, interesting. The cool thing is, I think, is the precision by which you can come to your understanding if, you have, if you're a history buff. If you're really a serious, you know, entrenched in the history of things, when you pick up these pages and start reading through, you would be going, oh, I know who that, that was Bernice. She was sent to such and such, and they married, and it didn't turn out right. They had hoped it would, and it didn't, and right? So to me, the amazing thing is the precision of it. This is also why so many argue that Daniel was not written until after the fact, that it wasn't even written by Daniel. It was written later in history and, and then attached to the Daniel writing. What does that tell you about that, that person's faith in God? What does God tell us? Is it in Peter where he says, and holy men of, goal, of old wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit? And then he, he says in, uh, I think in Romans 14, he says, and these things are written for our encouragement, right? And instruction so that we will basically follow God, that we will walk with him. Um, the, we have a God that's really big. He knows the end from the beginning. From what we've seen in Daniel on the whole, do you think it's too far-fetched to believe that God knew all those alliances and all those kings and all those wars that were going to take place? It's exciting to think you've got a God that's that big. I I find it comforting. Huh? Yes. Yes. And he's in the heavenly doing warfare to make sure that things fall in place the way 
that he knows so well. The other thing that's really interesting is God does not make a person do anything that they don't want to do. He allows free will in all of this, even though those kings are being kind of pushed one way or another. It's just like we played, prayed earlier, Karen, for your house situation. God either opened a door or closed the door. But as, as people, God allows us free will to choose. And usually for his own, he'll, whatever you decide, he'll make it work for your good, right? But it's, it's really interesting to me. People who have little faith, they see the writings of Daniel and say, this could have never have been written before because it's too accurate. But when you get down to starting in verse 36 to the end of 11, they have nothing in history that matches it. And what does that tell us? It hasn't happened yet. Very cool. Any great words of wisdom for us? Any thoughts? My guys are really quiet in the room. <laughs> okay, guys, thank you so much. It was a lovely class and move on to chapter nine. See you next week. <laughs>